My Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel, I'm the Tolkien Geek, and here comes episode 6 of the Rings of Power. This review will probably be a little bit shorter because of the way they handled the episode, there's not as much plot because a lot of it's just a battle scene. Uh, this episode combined, finally, the Galadriel slash Numenor and the Southlands plot lines into one, and we completely ignore Elrond, Celebrimbor, Durin, Gilgalad, and the Harfoots and the Stranger. We don't even touch on any of that stuff in this episode. So it's very focused, and I think that's one thing that actually helped this episode. I like this episode a lot better than episode 5, although that's not saying much. If I had to give this a rating, I would probably still put it around a 6 or a 6.5 at best. And I think I mentioned this before, my rating scale is like 6 is where I start you know, finding something worth continuing watching. If I get below a six, I'm starting to think I'm wasting my time. So this episode was at least not a complete waste of time, although it still had significant problems that kept it from being what I would call a good episode. So again, as usual, let me kind of start with non-spoilery type stuff. Some of the things that I liked in this episode were the character interactions, they actually did pretty well with that. We get some time with Adar, and he seems like a genuinely interesting, intriguing character to get into. How much more we're going to get of him in this season is up for some question. Uh, Galadriel and Isildur have kind of a nice moment. It's brief, and it doesn't go very far, and even it has issues. But on the whole, it's at least kind of an interesting character development moment. We get a little bit of information about Isildur, which is then kind of followed up in a brief conversation with Elendil as well, where he mentions that his wife, Isildur's mom, died by drowning. So we get a little bit of interaction there, uh, and that tells us a little bit more about their history and some other stuff. And... Like I said before, the focus of the episode, I think, really helps. And this is the thing that I've been complaining about since the series got started, is they're trying to follow too many things, and they can't ever really develop anything. They finally managed to focus enough to get us some decent development of this one particular plot line. Unfortunately, it suffers from the fact that it's almost all spent on kind of a battle. It's it's almost kind of like the Helm's Deep in the Two Towers movie by Peter Jackson, where you spend a huge chunk of the movie building up to the battle, in the battle, and then kind of the aftermath of the battle. It's the same kind of thing here. Although we do get some interesting plot developments and some things really do happen in this story. And so, you know, in that sense, this is one of the better episodes. Uh, there's, unfortunately, just a lot of stupid in the episode. Not stupid in the way that episode 5 was stupid. Episode 5, just as I mentioned in my review of that episode, insulted the viewer's intelligence. Things happened in that episode that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. In this episode, it's not so egregious that it gets that bad, but there are just some of the fight scenes, some of the battle scenes, some of the tactical choices made, some of the the ways that the writers drag things out, and some of this kind of gets into the spoilery stuff, but the way that they will try to hold some kind of a dramatic suspense or something for overly long just ruins the effect. And 
that is one of my bigger criticisms of this particular episode because there's several scenes or collections of scenes in which they try to drag out some kind of tension to the point where there's no longer any tension, if there ever even was any, really. And it just, it to me it just shows a certain level of, ineptitude might be a too strong a word, but they don't have enough polish on this writing team to really storytell in an effective manner in this show, for whatever reason. I don't know why, but I'll get into that more in the spoiler stuff where I can get into the specific details and explain. Another thing they did a lot in this episode was homage. And you can tell that from the thumbnail on this video. There are so many references. Some of them you could almost believe are unintentional, but I don't really think they are. Uh, But there are so many references to Peter Jackson's trilogy in this episode, it's ridiculous. And on their own, I don't necessarily have a problem with that kind of a reference because it's, you know, trying to give some basis for people to be more interested in this show that they can see a connection in the other show. But the way it's being done is to just call out like a specific scene from the movie that you don't necessarily have any relevance to attach it in this show just for the sole purpose of being like, ha-ha, Peter Jackson moment, and that's all there is to it. At one point, they even go further, and you think they're just kind of copying what Peter Jackson did, but in fact go further and quote Tolkien, because Peter Jackson took a Tolkien line and kind of truncated it, and then they take take the same line and actually go further into what Tolkien said. And so they're actually copying straight out of the book, which would have been nice, except it also was delivered in kind of a clunky way that I didn't think really landed that well. So I'll get into the details of all that kind of stuff in the spoilers. Uh, my wife had, you know, comments as well on this episode. She watched the whole thing. She thought it was one of the better episodes Again, I tend to agree with that. One thing that she noticed that I did not notice is one of the very early scenes, so this is not really a spoiler, uh, the Isildur is, he's eating an apple down in the stables beneath decks. And again, issue, how do they have room for all the stables and all the food on these little bitty boats or whatever? He's eating an apple and he's talking to his horse and he takes a bite out of the apple and then he gives the horse a bite of the apple And then he takes a bite out of the apple. It's kind of gross. And then he goes up on decks. And I didn't even notice this the first time I watched it. I think I must have looked away when when this scene happened. But he actually chucks the apple overboard. Unfinished. Which is... My wife's, you know, comment on this was... Why didn't you let the horse finish the apple? I mean, seriously. My thought on top of that was, you're on a boat with limited food. It's not like you can just waltz over to the nearest supermarket and pick up more apples. Save your food! Your fodder is important! I mean, and this, again, goes to the writing room. The writers of this story don't seem to have any concept of how people actually would behave in these circumstances. If you're on a boat... You don't throw away perfectly good food. You might share it with your animal, maybe. Although even then, I think if you were smart, you'd probably eat your half and then give him the rest. 
but you're certainly not going to chuck a half-eaten apple overboard if it's a perfectly good apple. That's a complete waste. It's a complete waste even if you're not on a boat in an economy like this because they don't have supermarkets that can just go to and get more apples. They don't know what food they're going to find when they land. I mean, there's so many reasons why that's stupid. Uh, one of the other things that I really enjoyed about this episode was they actually kind of get into some deep metaphysical, philosophical type issues with Tolkien. And this is bending into the spoilers a little bit, but Galadriel has a conversation with Adar, and they talk about orcs. And I'll get into the detail of that later, but it, it very much touches on some of the themes and ideas that Tolkien was wrestling with in his later years about the issue of, are orcs redeemable? Are they irredeemably evil? What kind of creatures are they? What are their origins? Because he was wrestling with this concept late in life, realizing that his earlier conception of orcs as being totally evil didn't really work well, because he had introduced in The Lord of the Rings this idea that evil can't create life of its own. It can only mock or twist and corrupt what is already there. And as a result of that, he realized, well, orcs, since they have an independent life of their own, they can't be pure constructions of Morgoth, so they must be something else, but then they can't be completely irredeemable, but that's kind of the way they've been portrayed to this point, and it, he had to come up with a theory for how do we reconcile all these different things that are in there about orcs and goblins and how that fits into a world with a benevolent monotheistic god, much as, you know, a, a Christian or Judeo-Christian god would be. And so they touch on that in this episode in a way that I think was pretty well done. And I think that was really interesting part of the episode, and it was done really well, and it's, it's not going to be good if they later come along and try to do things with it that I think would be counter to the ideas that Tolkien had. But as long as they kind of just leave that tension on the table and don't try to make a specific, I don't want to say political because it wouldn't be political necessarily, but like a specific kind of argument for, you know, orcs, are, orcs have rights too and therefore we ought to just not have war with the orcs and go that far, I think it'll, it'll be fine. Question is... Can they resist the temptation of doing something like that? Uh, good question. Um, that said, there are some really clunky elements in this, too. The writing continues to be hit or miss. I mean, the narrative as well as the dialogue. Adar does a pretty good job. Whoever's writing Adar's character is doing a pretty good job. But Arondir and Bronwyn still can't seem to give a rousing speech to the people that they're trying to lead. They're... It's like these people can't understand what really gets people motivated, and so they can't write a speech that would actually get people motivated, and the writing just kind of falls flat. And then there's another scene with Elendil and Isildur towards the end of the episode, which is, this isn't really spoilery, they're just talking about uh, Isildur's horse being jittery, and Elendil comes up and says, because Isildur's trying to calm down, Elendil comes up, speaks some quinya to the horse, and basically calms the horse down, and Sildur's like, how'd you do that? And Elendil says, well, it's not 
he's not worried about something out there. He's worried about his rider. And basically, he's when a Numenorian and his horse go into battle for the first time, they become inseparably bonded, and the horse can kind of feel the you know the emotions of its rider. And Sildur's like, "How did you learn this?" And he said, "From your mother." And I can tell what they're going for here, but it at so many levels, I just don't think the conversation worked very well because first of all. Elendil learns from Isildur's mother this fact about Numenorean war horses? And I'm not making, like, a gendered issue out of this. I'm not saying that, like, because obviously the the way they're doing it, this came out a long time ago, that the Numenorean war, war machine is, like, 50% male and female. Let's assume, for sake of argument, Isildur's mother was somehow connected with the Numenorean army, Right. Why would he have had to learn that from her specifically? I mean, he's obviously connected with, you know, the Numenorean military himself, and he says it as if it's like a, just a thing that's kind of known, and and that even makes it seem kind of weird that Isildur doesn't already know it. But, you know, Isildur is young at least. Elendil is not so young that you would think that, you know, he wouldn't know it if this is a thing, but how, what did she, it just strikes me as such a weird thing that he would learn from his mother. There's no background or explanation of any of this. It just seems like a a weird attempt at trying to get them to bond over the mother, which is kind of like a half source of tension between them, which has never really been explained either, and so it just doesn't come off well. It just, I like I said, I can see what they're trying to do with it, but it just doesn't they haven't given us enough of the setup for it to pay off. So, again, writing's still half clunky. I mean, like, it, it just, there's problems with the writing. The writers for the show are doing, at best, a decent job. They never achieve greatness. And, you know, sometimes they get pretty good, but a lot of the time it's just either meh or that's weird. Uh, and then, well... A lot of the other stuff I'm going to have to get into the spoilery section. So, let's get into that. So, first, I'm just going to do a really quick rundown of the plot here because it's basically just one plot all the way through and come back and touch on specific things that were either good or bad. The basic plot is Adar is bringing his orcs and the men from, you know, that that were in Ostirith who came to serve him under Waldreg because they're all really brilliant. He leads them to Ostirith to take the tower. They open up the gate, which is not barred or locked in any way. They walk in. There's nobody there that they can see, and they're searching around. Turns out Arondir is hiding, and he shoots a flaming arrow up at a rope that is attached to... It's in the dark. It's really not very clear to me what it was attached to, but for whatever reason, the bigger, better mousetrap leads to the collapse of the tower, which then falls on some of the orcs that are in the courtyard of Ostirith. And Arondir gets away. He then goes down and meets with the actual humans who were... Somehow they got out and walked towards the village without being spotted by the orcs, even though they're carrying torches. Like, I don't know how this happened. Again, stupid writing. It's like... The orcs who were coming to the tower completely missed the big group of humans coming out of the tower, going back the same way that the orcs are coming from. 
Like, maybe there's a way they could have gone way around, but the way that we've always been introduced to Osterith is that it's kind of at this little cleft in the mountains and there's no other way up or down. Ha- whatever. So they go to the village, and that's where they're going to hold up and try to fight off the orcs. Which, major tactical blunder, if you have a castle, stay in the castle. Like, you could defend that... The way into Osterith is just like at Helm's Deep. There's one causeway, and there's nowhere else they can come in. So it's the perfect defensive point. All you gotta do is hold that point, and you're fine. But no, we're gonna make it stupid, and we're gonna leave the fortified area and go to the village where there are no walls that can't be torched. Smart move. Anyway, Arondir meets up with them. They're all in the you know, the village, and Arondir, you know, he says that, you know, this building is going to be our keep. That'll become relevant later. So they're getting ready, they're preparing for the orcs to come down, they end up having a battle, the orcs come, they have a battle, but it's, it starts off with another trap, and this is another thing that's stupid about it, it's like y'all just fell for a trap when you walked into an empty place, they walk into an empty town, mostly empty town as far as they could see, and they act like there's no chance of a trap here. It's like you literally just fell for a trap under the same circumstances. You can't... whatever. So what happens is Bronwyn is trying to... or maybe it's somebody with Bronwyn. She's with another woman, and they're both there, but they're trying to light a fire onto a wagon that they can then roll down. Well, that doesn't work out too well. One of the orcs hears them while they're trying to get the flint to light, and it's not lighting... Orc comes over, kills the one woman, but Bronwyn manages to kill the orc because the orc is pitiful at fighting. Again, bad fight scenes. And she uses the torch that he was carrying to light the thing and do it. And then Arondir lights another one with his arrows, and then basically they trap the orcs in between two things of fire, except not really because one of them doesn't... It leaves kind of a gap. At any rate, the villagers all pop up from the ceilings, well, the roofs of the, the nearby houses and start shooting down into the orcs. The orcs shoot back. There's a battle. Arondir gets into a long fight with this one particularly big, brutish orc who is kind of throwing him around like a rag doll, and they're doing really... Again, it's not a very good fight scene. It's not like Galadriel killing a troll that literally just wiped out two or three elves who were sitting around doing nothing because there's only the two combatants so there's nobody to sit around doing nothing. Uh, but it's still not a very good fight scene, and some of it was okay, some of it was like, what? And then Arondir pulls a move that I'm pretty sure is from Capoeira, and if you don't know what Capoeira is, look it up. C-A-P-O-E-I-R-A. It's I some kind of South American system, I think, but he does this weird kick thing that's and this is another thing I don't like. It's like, can we just get some actual European-style fighting in some of these things? This is one area where Peter Jackson did mostly pretty good. Like, it wasn't legit straight out of the historical treatises European sword fighting, but it was at least close enough for movie work, right? This, they're trying to make a Rondier like this multi-talented martial artist of all styles, and it's just... Guys, this is, I mean, 
for, forget the racial connotations here. This is supposed to be a very European thing. Chainmail, swords, shields, banners. I mean, Tolkien's whole idea was to have a mythology that was based very heavily in European stuff. So you expect something like European fighting styles, at least. Please? He's not a jujitsu guy, or whatever style they're using. At any rate, they're fighting back and forth. The Rondir manages to stab the orc in the eye. This minor detail is actually very crucial, by the way. He stabs him in the eye, which apparently doesn't go deep enough to his brain because he's still fighting him, and then he knocks him up against a well and he's pushing him down. A Rondir reaches up, and instead of driving the thing home in his brain... He, like, twists it or something, as far as I could tell, and then the orc is like, nope, I'm going to get it out of my own eye, and then I'm going to try to push it in your eye. And you know the scenes in the movies where, you know, two guys clash swords, and then they hold it together for a few seconds, and then they break apart somehow or other. This scene was, like, five times as long as probably the worst one of those you've ever seen, because he's, like, holding it over his eye, and he's getting closer, and he's getting closer, and he's getting closer, and he's getting... I mean, it just goes on and on, and you're just like, I have lost all dramatic tension, because I know what's going to happen sooner or later, and sure enough, guess who? Bronwyn comes up and stabs the orc in the back and kills him, which I find ironic, because... The orc is trying to push down on a Rondir, right? So if Bronwyn comes from behind and hits him from behind, it's going to push him forward, which is going to put more weight on a Rondir, who's already losing ground, and it's going to go into his eye. That doesn't happen, of course, because story. Anyway, at the end of this fight, they basically won. But then a Rondir, looking at the dead, realizes, wait, that's red blood. Orcs don't have red blood. That's his kind of been established already. He looks down and lifts a helmet, and it's humans. And it turns out that among... There were some orcs, but there were a lot of humans from their own villages in the group. And, of course, they're all really sad about this. Here's one of the moments where we get a Peter Jackson reference, because there's an orc who, when he sees... He's, like, half dead, but he sees this realization, and he has to make kind of a smarmy, witty remark, and... It's just like the scene out of the two towers where uh, the orc talks about Aragorn falling off the cliff. Peter Jackson reference, right? This one is not the most egregious, but I'm pretty sure that's what they were up to. Well, so anyway, they're all lamenting the fact that they've just killed a bunch of their own, you know, friends, family, whatever. And then the next thing, there's arrows coming out of the night. There's still a bunch of orcs out there, and now they're coming in after all of this has already happened. So they kind of sent in the humans as like the sacrificial lambs to take the first brunt of the assault. And now that they've, you know, played their only real trick, (laughs) the orcs are going to come in and wipe them out. Well, they start shooting arrows. Bronwyn takes an arrow in like the upper left chest somewhere, it looks like. And they get inside the keep. And the reason why I say that is because here's another Peter Jackson moment. Arondir says, fall back to the keep. Really? It's such a cheap, cheap ripoff of Peter Jackson, but whatever. So they get inside the keep, and Theo and Arondir are trying to take care of Bronwyn. Bronwyn actually tells Theo, no, go help him first. It's another guy who got shot in the back a couple times with an arrow, or at least once. And he looks over at him, and he's dead. Of course, Everybody from the Arrows dies instantly, except Bronwyn, who, by the way, when they start really treating her, 
They pull the arrow out, and then she just starts losing blood, like, lots of it. A Rondir uh, pulls out the Alpharin seeds that she gave him way back in episode one or two, and sticks it in the wound, and then she's saying very quietly, because she's virtually passing out at this point from loss of blood, I guess, burn. And he says, oh, she wants us to burn her wound. So they get a flaming piece of wood and they torch both ends. Now, the only problem with this, as my wife pointed out, is she's still going to be bleeding internally. That's not going to stop her from dying from loss of blood. You could stop the blood from coming out of the body, but if that arrow went through that much stuff and it's bleeding that heavily, you're probably not cauterizing enough of the arteries and stuff to really stop the blood loss. But the worst part about this scene is whenever she gets the first torch, she screams in pain. And then the second time she screams and then passes out and everybody thinks she's dead. And then, yeah, I'm doing the silence on purpose because it it lasts longer than that. It lasts for several seconds. And then all of a sudden she goes, And it's just like, the Alpharin seeds, I suppose, are magic. Somehow, I don't understand what that's supposed to be about. And it's been way too long since I read in anything about Alpharin seeds. Alpharin is just the same thing as Symbol Muna, for those of you who don't know. But I don't remember there being anything specifically in the lore about them being magical healing properties. But whatever, she comes back to life and then she's... She acts perfectly normal other than the fact that she's hurt. And she lost a bunch of blood. She really ought to be, like, fainting. And, you know, it's not actually surprising that she fainted from the pain and the loss of blood in the first place. So the fact that they were assuming she was dead is kind of weird anyway. But, you know, nobody thought to, like, check her breathing or anything else. They just looked and assumed she's dead. Nobody even bothered to check. But So she survives, but then, of course... While all this is going on, by the way, we see a woman look out the window of whatever building they're in, and an orc just scuttles by. And the crazy thing about this is, we know that the orcs were right out there. This whole scene with Bronwyn getting taken care of takes a pretty decent amount of time, and we see from what the woman sees, or almost sees, I think she may look away right before it happens, but... There's an orc right near the building, but it is only at the tail end, after Bronwyn is okay and everybody's heaving big sighs of relief, that the orcs then full-on barge into the place. How convenient is that? It's just, there's no battle holding the orcs off. There's no nothing. It's just at the end of Bronwyn kind of reviving, then we see the orcs march in and they all attack the building. Now, the stupid part about this is... When they barge into the building, the only person who puts up any kind of a fight is a Rondir. Even though the rest of the villagers had just been fighting in hand-to-hand, you know, like pitchfork to sword, whatever, combat with the other orcs, now they just all kind of like stand there and watch a Rondir, you know, very quickly get overwhelmed and an orc grabs Theo and holds him by the throat and then another one gets ready to chop off Bronwyn. Adar walks in and basically says, you know, give me what I'm looking for, namely the sword hilt. Earlier, Arondir had hidden it, and he basically said, nobody can know where I do this, because Bronwyn asked him, where are you going to put it? And he's like, no one can know. So Arondir, you know, just stubbornly refuses to give him the sword, because he knows that's going to be bad news. 
And Adar basically says, all right, well, I'm just going to start killing people. So he gets orcs, and they legitimately start killing off humans one by one. And then then he says, okay, kill the woman next, meaning Bronwyn. And Arondir, you know, credit to Arondir, he's actually not going to give him the sword over this. Uh, And I know that sounds really harsh, but given the position they were in, it would be stupid to do it. Because, I mean, what's to say that he's not going to kill her anyway, and you don't know what they're going to unleash if they get it. So giving it to him would be stupid. Theo, of course, it's his mom. Theo's like, no, wait, I'll do it. So we don't know how Theo knows, or, you know, if that was something that was shown in the show. I don't I don't even think it showed where Arondir hit it, if I remember correctly. But even if it, you know, I might have briefly missed it. I was kind of distracted for part of the show trying to do some other stuff. But Theo somehow knows where it is, and sure enough, he pulls it out, and he, you know, hands it over to Adar. Now, all the while, I've been following the Southlands, specifically, but of course we also get some scenes where Galadriel and all those people are on the boats and they're sailing. Uh, There's actually another scene here where my wife had a comment, which actually is not as legitimate a criticism as it might have been, but maybe it is. We'll see. Uh, She mentioned the fact that when Isildur comes up on deck, she ends up talking to Galadriel and Galadriel says that, you know, I can already see the land. I've been able to see it for an hour, but you'll be able to see it in a little bit. Elvish eyes, right? My wife's comment was, there's still the, the, the shape of the earth to consider here. The angle of the curvature of the earth prevents you from seeing more than a certain distance. So that can't be solved with elf eyes. So I had to explain, like, there's a flat earth thing going on in Middle Earth. But... We don't know if that's even necessarily the case in this particular version of Middle-earth because Tolkien changed his mind on that, and we don't know how they're doing it, but whatever. Let's assume it's a flat Earth, and that's why Galadriel can see it. So anyway, they talk about, you know, they're going to be sailing up, you know, into the river and then get there, and so we know that they're coming, right? And as we're getting to this point where everything looks like it's about to go to pot... We do get this one scene where we see Galadriel leading a charge of all the people in cavalry and just, you know, riding at full speed. And it's very obviously meant to be a callback to the arrival of the Rohirrim at Minas Tirith in Peter Jackson's movie. And again, it just does not land. We have, the way they frame it, for one thing, is a problem. Because I, if I remember correctly, the scene falls in either right before Bronwyn passes out or right after she's come back and the orcs have all busted in. The idea being, it's like, oh, there's help on the way. But the scene we get just before has no natural connection to it. We have, and, and then the scene after we see it, which is very brief, it doesn't look like they're anywhere near it. And from what we can see in the Southlands, portions of the scenes, it still looks like it's just nighttime, whereas with the Numenorians, it looks daytime. So the scenes don't even connect. And then we get more scene with, you know, all the Adar talk about the sword and all this other stuff. It just falls in the middle as if it's supposed to be this great heroic moment, and it's just them riding on a plane. We can't even tell that they're anywhere near the village. We don't know anything. So the way that it's done, it's like, did you not understand how Peter Jackson made that scene work? Like, that scene is great in the book, and Jackson, to his credit, made that scene really great in the movie. 
And it works because the music worked with it really well, the arrival was staged properly, the setup was there, everything was done right. The way they do it in this show is just like sudden break from near disaster about to occur to there's horses with people on them somewhere and then cut back. And it's just like, that was not nearly the heroic moment we wanted. Anyway, it, it just didn't, it didn't work. But anyway, Adar gets the sword and it's about this time that the Numenorians, believe it or not, actually do arrive in the village. How exactly they got there is not clear, because it seems pretty clear that the village is within the walls of Mordor, so how did the horses all gallop over the mountainsides? Never mind. Anyway, the Numenorians arrive and they pretty much take out the orcs really, really fast. Galadriel, and I have to give credit to Nerd Cookies for this one, Nerd Cookies uh, YouTube channel, she's on uh, Twitter as well, and that's where she made this comment. Uh, was something to the effect that Galadriel is like Neo on a horse. (laughs) And that's not a good thing. She is flipping herself around on this horse, dodging spears and arrows in ways that are just... Some of the things that Legolas does in the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies are bad. But some of the things they do in this show are arguably worse. Let's just leave it at that. Anyway, they are creaming them, and in the middle of all this, we see Adar take Waldreg aside and say, I have a task for you. And we know what it is, because we're not stupid. We all know it has to do with the sword. Clear, right? So, then we break away, and there's some more fighting. Arondir uh, recognizes Galadriel somehow, and Galadriel at one point actually comes up to him, and says, Where, where's the commander of all these people? And he points over at Adar and says, he cannot be allowed to escape with the item that he has. So Galadriel gives chase. She's on a horse, and Adar just got on a horse, and so they start running. Halbrand sees this too, and grabs a spear and starts to take up the chase. Galadriel is riding down Adar. Halbrand apparently finds some other way to cut Adar off, which makes no stinking sense at all, because... Presumably, he's riding in a straight line somewhere to get away, and yet Halbrand knows how to cut him off in a land that he's... I mean, he's been there before, but that particular village? I doubt. Anyway, he does manage to cut Adar off, uses his spear to trip Adar's horse, and knocks him over. The bundle that Adar is carrying, which is obviously not the sword falls off, and Adar tries to go over and get it. Halbrand walks up and stabs his hand with the spear. Halbrand recognizes Adar, and Adar does not recognize, or at least pretends not to recognize Halbrand. Halbrand, you know, basically says, do you remember me? And (laughs) Adar just says, no. (laughs) So it's kind of one of those, you know, I hate you because you did something horrible. And actually, Adar even plays on that. He's like, did I do something to hurt? And it's not necessarily right this scene. I think it's later. But he says, you know, did I do something to hurt somebody you love? You know, a woman, a child. We never get an answer to that question, incidentally. But Galadriel comes up. They, you know, and then the next thing we know, they're all back in the village. Most of the people are taking their ease, doing whatever. There's a bunch of orcs who are apparently just captured as opposed to being killed, 
which is unusual. Orcs usually don't surrender. Galadriel is inside a building talking with Adar. And this is where the conversation comes up about orcs and the metaphysics of it all that I really enjoyed. Because Galadriel, of course, tries to get right to the point about where is Sauron. I want to know where Sauron is. Adar ends up telling her, and I'm not telling this in order, I'm just kind of connecting the the threads a little bit, but he ends up telling her basically that I hate Sauron because he sacrificed a bunch of my children to, you know, his quest to try to bring order and healing to Middle-earth, and he was trying to use the powers of the unseen world to do whatever. It's not exactly clear, but we get flashbacks to the things that Galadriel saw in that fortress in the north, which, you know, imply that there was some really dark sorcery going on, and that's what Sauron was trying to do, and then he says what he realized is he had to do it a different way, and it He's hinting at something, but we don't really know exactly what yet. He's more specific than that, but I don't remember his exact words. Um, and it comes out that Adar is actually one of the very first elves corrupted by Morgoth, and it's for that reason that he's, you know, he looks the way he does, and that's why he's, you know, still kind of elf-like, but not pretty elf. <laughs> um and he, this is one of the sillier things. He says something like, we prefer to be called Uruks. <laughs> okay, fine, pal, whatever. Um, but she's getting all mad at him. And he even says that as a result of all the stuff that went on with Sauron, that he's, I think he specifically says, I split him in two. Which is a really weird thing to say, but... And she says, I don't believe you. And he says, why? You don't believe an Uruk could do what you and your armies couldn't? which was an obvious, you know, jab at her to try to get her mad. But, of course, it also is really weird. Like, how would he kill Sauron? Remember, Sauron is the guy who, after the fall of Numenor, comes back and is strong enough to fight off Elendil, Isildur, Elrond, Círdan, and, uh, who am I forgetting? Gilgalad. Gilgalad. All at the same time, until they finally manage to kill him, but this guy kills him how? I really wonder about that story, but I'm not sure I disbelieve that Adar thinks he killed him. I think he's probably being a pawn in the game, but we'll get to that. Galadriel ends up, you know, trying to force him to tell her, you know, something, and because she doesn't believe him. And she threatens to harm slash kill his the orcs that are following him, his children. And this explains, of course, why he's called Adar, which is an Elvish word for father, uh, to get him to talk. And he says, well, it seems that I'm not the only elf here that's been touched by the darkness. you know. And, and that's a legit point, because one of the things, and I don't remember which book this is in. I, it might be in Morgoth's Ring. It might be in the nature of Middle-earth. It's in a later, later, relatively speaking, book. But it says, you know, elves would not treat even orcs cruelly as prisoners if they ever took any, which was rare. Uh, which is one of the things I didn't like about the Hobbit films, by the way, because Thranduil just straight up murders the orc, and that's that's really not okay. So Galadriel really shouldn't be threatening to do that either, but also Galadriel in here is very much not an elf that we would recognize as particularly Tolkienian. Anyway, she ends up almost killing Adar in her anger, and then Halbrand stops her, which, you know, thank goodness for that, right? 
And then they, I think this is the point where Adar and Halbrand have the conversation about what happened between them that we don't really get explained. We just know that they know each other. Halbrand and then uh, Galadriel go off and they have a conversation together where Galadriel says, thank you for stopping me. And they also have a little bit more of a conversation in which Halbrand says he's felt really good fighting alongside her and he really wants to keep that feeling. And she says something along the lines of, I know what you mean, I felt it too. And it almost actually does seem like they're trying to make Galadriel and Halbrand a thing, which would very much upset me. (laughs) And a lot of other Tolkien fans. Where is Kelleborn? Uh, (laughs) Anyway, they go back to the village. Galadriel is still carrying Adar's little bundle, which nobody has opened, nobody has done anything with, nobody, we know it's not the sword, okay? And I'm not kidding, it's not the sword. They go back into the village, and she gives it to Arondir, and Arondir then gives it to Theo, basically, because Theo, he comes over and thinks Theo's despondent because he gave up the sword. And he said, Theo said, it's not just guilt that I feel, it's also loss, because when I held it, I felt power. Arondir says, well, then, you know, get rid of it permanently. And Theo's like, how? Well, give it to the Numenorians and they'll throw it, you know, out into the sea when they leave. Which actually sounds like a pretty good idea, but it's also kind of an interesting reference to the whole idea in the Council of Elrond, where, why don't we just throw the ring in the ocean? (laughs) Maybe not a great idea. (laughs) Um, but at any rate, he gives it to Theo and then he walks off and Theo opens it and it's like, and then it shows that it's just like a little stone hammer hatchet thing. And so then of course we get a cut of Waldreg who has the sword and he's in Austerith where the statue is that shows the Morgoth or Sauron head over the, the sword and there's a pedestal with a really convenient place to stick the sword. And, of course, he sticks the sword in, he turns it, and then the dam that's up there at Austerith, which I don't remember us ever seeing the dam before, but maybe I just never paid attention, starts to break and a bunch of water goes down and there's water spouts coming up in the village and then we see Adar kind of lay down and I guess he's listening but then it goes down underground, and we see what the tunnels are for. The tunnels are taking the water. And they're taking the water to Mount Doom, of course, which is not yet Mount Doom, but, you know, it just looks like a mountain, but eventually it all gets there, and the water pours in, and we have what is apparently called, and I may mispronounce this, a magmatic explosion or eruption. Basically, and I looked this up, this is legit, the... Inpouring of the water over the magma creates a huge amount of steam, which expands enormously compared to the the density of water. And that's what leads to the explosion of Mount Doom, which then starts sending all kinds of debris into the village. The people start trying to run for cover, which makes no sense because all their houses are easily crushed by any one of these pieces of debris. And then we get a gigantic dust cloud, which covers up everything. Now, in the midst of all this eruption going on, one of the other weird, stupid things that I've noticed in this was that the Numenorians, some of them kind of panic and run over to where the orcs are as if they're trying to stop them from escaping, I guess. And an orc kills a Numenorian, seemingly. And I'm just like, if they were prisoners, 
Why was this a serious threat? Like, why, why do you need to worry about the orcs? I, I, it, th- that scene made no, no sense to me. Anyway, the last thing we see is everybody running helter-skelter trying to find shelter, and Galadriel alone is, like, just walking slowly towards Mount Doom with this look on her face like, oh. Um, and then the giant cloud just engulfs her, and that's the end of the episode. So just to round out a couple more things here where I left out in the actual plot description, I managed to cover most of the stupid stuff that I found, and interesting stuff too, in the actual plot description. I was planning to give a little bit briefer description and then come back, but that didn't work out. At any rate, as I mentioned earlier, Bronwyn seems to recover almost instantly. And when I say that, I don't mean just in that one little scene, like later after the battle is over. She's up walking around with minimal support from a Rondir. It's like she lost a ton of blood. She's probably not really capable of being up at all. She needs to be lying down, being tended to. So that's just nuts. The other thing, and I kind of already got into this, but this whole time, and this goes back to the writing room, we've got this tension, or alleged tension, the show wants you to have tension about the sword, right? Adar has the sword, we gotta stop him. But we all know he gave it to Waldreg. I mean, it doesn't it's not stated and it's not shown, but we all know exactly what that was. So this idea that there's a tension there is just so phony, and yet they keep that tension, allegedly, sitting there forever because nobody looks into the package until right at the end when Theo opens it, and then finally it's like, Ugh! well, duh, we all knew that as the audience. The only people that are actually surprised by this are the people in the show And that's because none of them had the God-given sense to just open it in the first place to figure out what it was and make sure it was actually something important until the very last minute when it was too late. It's just... A couple other Peter Jackson throwback moments that I found really silly were the dam breaking reminded me of the dam breaking at Isengard in the Two Towers. And I was just like, but there's really no... It just seems so set up, but that wasn't the worst one. The one where they actually tried to do the whole Tolkien thing instead of just going to Peter Jackson was Theo comes up to Bronwyn before the battle and he says, you remember what you used to tell me when I was, I don't remember exactly what he says, when I was scared or something. And she says, yeah, I remember. And he says, you want to tell it to me again? Which is like the most awkward, really, this is not a way that people talk. And she says, she gives the line about the light and high beauty that, you know, the shadow cannot touch. And she gives the line as delivered in Peter Jackson and then goes an extra, you know, half step. She still doesn't finish the the entire quote, but she gives more of it than is in Peter Jackson. And as a result, I'm just left, the way it was set up was so clunky. And then the, why would this be something that she would say. It, it doesn't seem natural in the context at all. It just, oh look, it's a talking quote! And this goes back to a complaint I've made before, and it just seems like it's worse in this episode because they did it so many times that there's just a ton of Easter egg type stuff where it's like, hey, see, we can do talking, and, and yet the rest of the show is just 
so not Tolkien, it makes the Tolkien stuff just seem cheap and gaudy and unearned. It's just bad. So, and there was way more stuff. I can't even remember all of the Peter Jackson nods and references that were in there. There were so many of them in this episode, but those were just some of the ones that stood out. Now, coming back to a, a point I mentioned earlier about Adar being a pawn. This goes to the whole sword thing, right? Theoretically, the whole sword thing was set up by Sauron, but Adar is just using it for the purposes of giving his orcs a home. And one of the things that he says to Galadriel is this idea that, you know, we you know, we deserve to live and have a home just like anybody else. We are also children of Iluvatar. Which, you know, is a really interesting thing. Galadriel says, you're kind of a mistake, a mockery. I don't like the use of the word mistake by Galadriel there. And you could excuse it as her being hot-headed, I guess. But it's it's clearly not a mistake. Morgoth was being very intentional when he was creating the race of orcs. But they are also, you know, depending on which version of the lore you go by, descendants of elves. And so, Adar could literally be the progenitor of a lot of these orcs which could explain why he cares for them. Which, of course, is complicated because, in that sense, yes, maybe they do deserve to have a life of their own. That doesn't mean they have the right to be cruel and kill a bunch of people to do it. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's an interesting thing because of the nuance and complexity that that whole conversation brings in. Uh, but the point I'm getting at here specifically is... Adar is trying to do this kind of for his own purposes, at least according to him. He doesn't like Sauron, because Sauron sacrificed a bunch of his children, quote-unquote, for his own purposes, and that's why he, theoretically, killed Sauron. Nevertheless, because this sword key thing brought about the eruption of Mount Doom, which is not Mount Doom, but, you know, not yet, it seems like he has fallen into a ploy of some sort, where Sauron is going to be like, I got you to do exactly what I wanted you to do, so now I can come in and do what I want to do with Mount Doom and what will become Mordor. So, that's an interesting development there. But another thing that I find interesting about all that is, where did this sword come from? Who set this up? And why has it taken so long for anybody to do anything with it? Obviously, Adar does not have the capability on his own to set up all that. Like, the, the level of stuff that was required by that sword and, you know, the fact that the sword itself is so magical in and of itself, all of that speaks to Sauron or Morgoth even being involved from the start, in which case, what was the plan and why was it never carried out before and why is it only just now being carried out and how does Adar even know about the sword? It raises so many questions. And another thing that it does, and this... Whenever the rumbling started happening from the water going underground and all that, the orcs who were captured started chanting, Udun, Udun, Udun. And for those of you who don't know, Udun is in the very northwest corner of Mordor. It's where the Black Gate leads into. It's like this little circular area surrounded by mountains, kind of in a circle. And it's called Udun on the map, which often gets translated by Tolkien in certain contexts as hell, but not in the Christian sense of hell being like eternal damnation in a lake of fire. That's not what he means. He means kind of the pit or the abyss, because that's really the more Norse-slash-Anglo-Saxon idea of Hela being, you know, the goddess associated with... goddess or god associated with that. At any rate, 
it makes me think that Ostirith is actually at one or the other end of what will become Udun, which seems weird, though, because Mount Doom ain't that close to that. Mount Doom is pretty far away from the Black Gate and Udun in Mordor. I'd have to go back and look at the map to find out the actual distance, but it's a long ways away. Uh, but if that actually is Udun, that means we've been sitting up here at the northwest corner of Mordor for the Southlands thing for a long time, which I find just a smidge strange. But I'm not sure what the implications of that are just yet. I'm not sure I dislike it. I'm also not sure I like it. At any rate... That pretty much wraps up my review. This, again, this episode was mostly okay, except for there were really dumb decisions and there was really clunky writing. But there were also some pretty good moments and there was some action. We actually got some movement of the plot and yay, we didn't have Harfoots. I know some people want to have some development on the Harfoots and I would love to have some development on the Harfoots, but since the writers seem dedicated to giving us scenes with the Harfoots with no actual development of what's going on with the stranger or anything else, I figure we might as well skip it. I'm also not entirely sad that we didn't get any Elrond after the disaster that was episode 5. I'm sure we'll get back to them in the next episode. Uh, but, you know, my main complaints with this particular episode are the kinds of complaints that I've had since the beginning, which is the writers just don't have a good sense of dialogue. They don't have a good sense of narrative coherence. They don't seem to have a good sense of just like how to make logical decisions. And it just really makes the show suffer. It's like if you just had decent dialogue and logical coherence in the narrative and the plot and what the characters do, that would go a long way to making this show pretty decent, actually. But they just can't seem to do it. And it's so annoying. And if they could have done that, I could have even forgiven all the Easter eggs for Peter Jackson and the Lord of the Rings. I could have overlooked all that as fan service if it was just a well-written show. It's just not. So like I said, back to what I was saying, I would rate this probably around a 6 to a 6.5, meaning it's enough to keep me watching, but not good, good. And even that might be slightly skewed upwards because episode 5 was so bad. So, I, I don't know if I'm coming off of that low and thinking this is way better than it is, or if I'm just looking at it and going, you know, that's actually not bad. Hard to say anymore. But that's my review of Episode 6. Hope everybody enjoyed that. There were definitely some moments, some very interesting moments. There were some good things about this episode. That's what, that's what really gets me, though, is... The moment with Adar and Galadriel talking about the origin of orcs and some of the other character moments that are actually kind of decent. It's like, if they could be more consistently like that, this show would be 7, 8, maybe even almost a 9, despite the lore problems, because it would at least be engaging. But, man, it's just so disappointing that they can do some things that are really interesting and then just bring it all down, but... That'll that'll just have to do for this, this week. So I will see you all for the Episode 7 review in about a week from now. Remember, social links in the description below. Discord, Twitter, all that good stuff. Alternative, alternative platforms you can find me with uh, on podcasters as well. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.
Thanks to all my Patreon and Utreon supporters, including Ringbearers Ego Voice and Emir Ali, and Elf Friends PA Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan DeFore, and Paul Leone. <laughs>